millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's insurance commissioner talks about how the proposed bill to replace the Affordable Care Act might affect Mississippians. State Auditor Stacey Pickering comments on financial conditions in the state. And every day after everyday tech, a report by the Sentencing Project reveals just how many prisoners face life in prison. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi State Insurance Commissioner says it's too soon to know how repeal of the Affordable Care Act would impact the state. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the American Health Care Act last week. Among the changes, it removes individual and employer mandates to buy insurance, provides subsidies based on age instead of income and premium costs, and allows states to charge more for people with certain pre-existing conditions. Mike Cheney, State Insurance Commissioner, tells MPB's Desiree Fritz how he sees Mississippi's point of view. My major concern would be for the state is what effect will this have on Medicaid because that in turn affects everybody in the state. So we'll just have to wait and see what it does on, on the state budget. Medicaid today is almost an unfunded mandate for the state of Mississippi. So that should be an interesting deal to see what the Senate does with Medicaid. You certainly don't want to kick people out in the street off of health care, but you've got to have some rhyme and reason as to what we should or should not pay for under the new systems that we're probably going to be looking at. So you just can't give everybody everything they want um, and make a system stay solid. It's said that as many as 24 million people nationwide could lose coverage. Do you see Mississippians being able to afford higher premiums because what is projected is that there will be less subsidies? Well, we don't know if the premiums will actually go up because the subsidies are less under under the proposal. So that's one of the reasons I'm saying we really need to wait and see what the Senate passes out. The effect on Mississippi, it would affect around 55,000 people at the most uh, under the ACA because that's the number of people we have covered today. It would not affect those people now that are on other policies that are not bought through the ACA. And specifically, those are what we call grandfathered plans. So we already have a law in place now uh, to give a waiver for those plans to stay in place through December of 2018. And by and large, they are about 60% less in cost than what they would be if they were ACA compliant. So I don't see a big increase to folks in Mississippi. When you do the math, we got 3 million people in the state. We're talking about uh, about less than 2% of the people would be affected by the changes on Obamacare right now. But if you included um, Medicaid, 
then you're talking about somewhere close to 30 to 35 percent of the state would be affected. We're talking about the low-income folks and the disabled and elderly. The elderly normally come under a different system. If you're over 65, you have Medicare, which is run by the federal government. And in some cases, someone can get Medicaid benefits in addition to Medicare. But those are different circumstances from what most of us understand. If you're under 65 and you're poor, you can still qualify for Medicaid in some cases. But in Mississippi, once you're on Medicaid, it's pretty hard for someone to get off of Medicaid. So to just make a statement that uh, this would affect the poor and the elderly is is not completely accurate to some degree because a lot of people are poor and they still don't have anything. In terms of those who now can afford the insurance premiums, there is room for them to charge five times the amount that young people pay. Well, today the law says that unless you're 60 years old, you cannot pay more than what a person 30 years of age would pay. So if you pay $600 at age 60 for your insurance per month, the 30-year-old would have to pay at least $200. And the problem is that 30-year-old can buy that same insurance for around $120 in the open market today. And under the proposed rules, the age band would go to 5 to 1, and hopefully what would happen is the person at 60 would still pay $600, And the 30-year-old at that point would pay $120, which is about what the market is on the street. And if that happens, it's okay. But if the reverse happens and they keep charging the 30-year-old $200 and they raise the rates to 5 to 1, then the 60-year-old goes from $600 to 1000 And my concern and what I told my congressmen and our senators is, as a regulator, I want the ability to control that age band. People with pre-existing conditions, what changes as a result of the American Health Care Act? Under the American Health Care Act, commissioners and our governors would have the ability to change essential health benefits. I have no plans to change ours because I chose them in 2014. I was one of the few states to pick the essential health benefits, so I know what we have. And I know what we're going to keep. I have no plans to change any of the essential health benefits. Plus, we have six mandated benefits on the state. So we cover a wide range of benefits in the state of Mississippi. I have no plans to change that. The proposed law gives the state-specific authority to regulate essential health benefits. And I'm, what I'm saying right now is I have no plans to change any of that. And then it does include that you have to have coverage continuously. You can't opt out. You cannot opt out, and that's been a lot of the problem. But the state still needs some some flexibility. State Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney with our Desiree Frazier. Coming up, findings of a recent state audit could affect Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Associate Professor of Finance at Mississippi College, joins me and answers questions about credit, investing, saving for retirement, and all things finance. Also, we invite you to call in and share your successes in navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
The results of the state auditor's annual audit report reveal weaknesses in state agencies. The single audit of Mississippi was also submitted late for the second year in a row. State Auditor Stacey Pickering says the late submission is a result of some agencies' inability to provide the required information on time. He says the 2016 fiscal year reports are the most problematic his office has filed. He explains what the poor report means to taxpayers. The single audit is the federally mandated uh, audit under the Single Audit Act by Congress uh, mandating that all federal funds uh, exceeding certain amounts must be audited and those audits submitted back to the federal government each year. This is uh, the second year in a row that Mississippi has had to ask for and be granted extensions in order to get the audit completed. Uh, This is due to the implementation of the MAGIC system, the new statewide uh, accounting system that was turned on two years ago as the state continues to work through the bugs and the kinks of that system. Is it the system itself that is flawed? No, I think the system in and of itself is going to be a very good, robust accounting system, and it's actually going to help the state in the long run. Uh, As with any enterprise-wide system that's just the switch is thrown, uh, we may not have had adequate training in the state of Mississippi whenever we did the conversion, as well as the learning curve to make sure that all employees understand the processes and how that information is to be uploaded, and it's working through some of those dynamics. You have described state agencies who have to provide information as ill-prepared and problematic. Can you explain that further? We've got some people working in the business offices of several state agencies who do not have the education, training, or background really to be doing the job that they're in. Uh, That's one thing we want to see, some mandatory training put in place for basic government accounting skills that must be gone through every year. We're going to ask the legislature to put that into statute for state agencies, and we'll work with the Department of Finance and Administration to develop the curriculum and the programming and to be able to track that. If this has happened for the last two years that you've had to file for extensions repeatedly and miss the deadline, what happened before? A couple of years ago, prior to the new software system being put into place, you had a legacy system in place where folks were comfortable, they knew it. So we went through a large retirement of state employees in the accounting profession and all the state agencies who didn't want to have to learn a new system and they decided to retire or seek jobs elsewhere. So we had a large exodus of qualified, trained, experienced personnel across the state. And again, we're on a steep learning curve. It's not that the individuals are bad or bad decisions. It was just we had a limited pool to pull from in the certain agencies situation. We had, I think, some bad hiring practices in a couple of places. But overall, these are issues that can be corrected, but it is creating a problem in the short term. You don't have any individuals profiting or gaining from this process. It's just a matter of staffing. And that's where we're looking to work with DFA to get the training in place to make sure that decision makers from the governor to the you know, legislature all understand what's happening and that decisions and funding decisions impact the long-term financial health of Mississippi. You know, if we don't put the money into implementing a software program, the money into the training necessary and the staffing necessary, then we're going to have the kind of problems we're having today. There was an instance in the Department of Education where there was money diverted and I think people were let go. Is that part of this in any way? Absolutely. Those uh, We have those problems not only at the Department of Education where they misappropriated money that was federally mandated for one program. They spent on another program. Uh, Department of Education is taking corrective action 
questions on that front. Uh, we are continuing to look at other programs there, uh, working with the Office of Inspector General, the U.S. Department of Education. But we have other state agencies that we are looking into, working with the agency heads to address, as well as our federal partners, whether it's DPS, the Department of Medicaid, and MEMA, or just to name a few, as well as the Department of Transportation, to make sure that all the federal money we have coming to Mississippi is accounted for, spent not just properly and transparently, but according to the federal rules, regulations, and the federal law. Do you believe that these other departments that you've mentioned, the mistakes, or are deliberate in any way? Because it sounds like in the Department of Education, it was a deliberate act to send money in the wrong direction. That's going to be determined as we move forward. The State Department of Education uh, leadership on our state board released uh, those individuals involved in that, so they felt like there was uh, some problems there, whether intentional or just not knowing their job. But they took corrective action all the way to the point of releasing some staff and personnel involved in that decision. They're difficult issues. They do reflect poorly upon our state's accounting and accountability system. But as the state auditor, my job is not to look out for the agencies, but it's to look out for the taxpayers. And this is one of the worst audits between our CAFR and our single audit. The CAFR is the comprehensive annual financial report for the state. The single audit is the federal funds. This is the worst audit we've had in modern accounting uh, history. What is the financial condition of the state? Does this reflect that? Well, it does not reflect uh, that we're financially uh, insolvent or anything of that nature. We have the money. We you know, It's tight budgets, understandably. Uh, we've already seen the rating agencies signal that they're getting ready to downgrade our bond rating as a state, not affecting our current debt, but future debt at this point in time because of the shortfall uh, in revenues that we're experiencing and those factors. Uh, the legislature struggling with it. Uh, whether it's our governor's proposal to uh, discuss and evaluate whether we need a lottery to whether this is the time to cut taxes or not cut taxes and uh, all of those debates that are taking place in the legislature. Revenue is one issue. Managing it's another. But the issue of accountability and how we audit and account for those funds and we follow is a totally separate issue that we've got problems in Mississippi when it comes to the financial management of the tax dollars. It has nothing to do with the amount of money that we have. It has to do with how we manage it. And that's where our audit point out that we've got structural issues with that in the state of Mississippi. They're correctable. There's actions that we can take, and we're working with state agencies to do that. But there are issues that if we don't get our hands on them, they will compound and become serious issues for the long term of the future of Mississippi. State Auditor Stacey Pickering, thank you so much for being with us. Karen, thank you. Appreciate it. Mississippi's financial reports are available online at osa.state.ms.us. Coming up, Jeremy Thompson and Wiltz Couture talk about smart tech in homes such as the Ring Doorbell, Alexa, and smart TVs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Wilkes Couture and Jeremy Thompson. And today we're going to be talking about smart tech devices in your home. Good morning to you, Wilkes and Jeremy. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm sure you guys probably have lots of smart devices in your home. It's just a really smart, intelligent home, right? Actually, no. Not, <laughs> not really. really. Uh, Alexa's the smartest thing in my house. Okay, what is Alexa? Uh, she's the uh, the tower from Amazon, the Echo. She's uh, about, I don't know, about a foot tall. You can talk to her. You can ask her the weather. You can ask her what the traffic's going to be like on your way to work. She's being built to do more and more things all the time. So how much information do you have to give to Alexa for her to perform? Let's say that you want her to control your light bulbs in your bedroom. Your light bulb is going to have a 
platform that you log into online and you just connect Alexa to that platform. So all you have to do is just log in and she knows what to do. Yeah, yeah a lot of that's just built straight on in. They're, they're expecting you to do that, actually. They're, they're building it for that particular device, so they're making it really easy to interface with that device. A lot of times when folks are talking about smart devices in homes, they're afraid about them being hacked or wondering if they're being spied on or something like that. So let's focus on the smart TV just for a moment. Should folks be worried at all when it comes to smart TVs? It's an interesting question. I don't know if there's really a simple answer to it. I mean, in order for it to do some of the features and functions that we want it to do, it has to have those capabilities. For example, I'll use an Xbox One. It's got a video camera in there, and you can do things such as walk into the game room, say Xbox, turn on, and it does it, and the camera automatically recognizes my face compared to my son's face and will log us in appropriately. In order to have those features, you've got to have those kind of things turned on, but it does it does raise that privacy concern. Uh, smart TVs caught a little bit of a flack. You know, they were in the news not too long ago about recording information. It highlights the need to secure your home. It mm-hmm. highlights the need to make sure that you're not just letting anybody in on that network because they are all functioning together. There is a security concern. I would actually recommend folks, hey, read the end-user license agreement. See what kind of information they're telling you they are saving or they are sharing. I recommend a set-top box like a Fire TV or a Roku or something like that because it doesn't have a camera on it. You can connect it to the Internet. It's going to do way more than your smart TV can do because I've just noticed that smart TVs just kind of fall flat on their faces when it comes to apps and things like that. They're just sluggish. They're not optimized for it. They're really not made for it. Yeah, the little $50 add-on Roku stick to me yeah. does as much, if not more, than any features I've ever seen on a smart TV. When it comes to other smart things in the home, there's this thing called Nest. Could you talk about Nest a little bit and what all it offers? So Nest is a uh, a suite of different products. They've got cameras, they've got thermostats, they've got smoke detectors. A lot of people have seen the thermostat, which is a smart thermostat. And so what it does is it sees, okay, it's 76 degrees in the house, and they just turn the temperature down to 68. So what it does is it begins to learn from your behavior. Mm-hmm. So when it sees that the house is occupied, because it has a little sensor on it, it can tell when somebody's walked past it within the last few minutes or whatever, it will go ahead and say, okay, it's 76 degrees in the house. I'm going to go ahead and turn down to 68 because that's what the user usually does. That's cool. Oh, yeah. And and also with the intelligence that's in there, it also gives you some reporting and the ability to look back into what is your actual use and trying to optimize that to maybe save you a couple dollars on that bill every month. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think it's a great little feature. My wife will turn the temp, you know, turn the thermostat up or down depending on the season. Whenever we leave and go somewhere, so we'll get somewhere. So, oh, I forgot to turn the thermostat down. Wasting a little bit of money. Well, with the Nest, you can actually log in online and turn your thermostat down when you're at work that day. And another smart tool that people are using in the home is home surveillance apps. So there's this thing called Ring that you were talking about, Jeremy. What's the Ring thing about? Okay, so the Ring is actually a uh, a doorbell that has a camera on it. So when somebody comes to your front door and they ring it, it can pop up on an app on your phone and you can see who's on your doorstep. And you're supposed to actually be able to talk with them in somewhat real time. It's not perfect, but mm-hmm. it's close. So you'd be like, hey, UPS guy, put that under the mat, please. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit more about smart devices in the home and have our smart home episode on Everyday Tech, the show this coming Wednesday morning at 10. You can always send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org and be sure to tune in Wednesday morning at 10 for Everyday Tech. For Wills Couture and Jeremy Thompson, I'm Sharita Brent. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. Thanks for listening.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new report from the Sentencing Project analyzes Mississippi's incarceration rates. The nationwide review focuses on people serving life sentences around the country. They found the number of life sentences as at an all-time high, having increased 4% since 1984. The results leave some pushing for change. Ashley Nellis is a senior research analyst at the Sentencing Project. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware how many people are serving life sentences. Over 200,000 people are serving life or life without or uh, a sentence of 50 years, which is um, commonly referred to as a virtual life. And this is spread across all regions of the country. Life sentences, you know, are the result of two things, more people coming in with a life sentence and people staying longer. Um, and they come in more frequently with a life sentence because of the broadening um, use of life sentences for capital and especially non-capital crimes. And then at the other end, um, there is an extension of wait times before one's initial parole hearing and also in between parole hearings. So you're not even um, probably going to live past a life with parole. And then there's a whole nother a group that's serving life without parole, and those people never get a parole hearing. So what are some of the numbers that we're seeing regarding those life sentences? Uh, one in seven people now um, in prison is serving a life sentence in Mississippi. That's one in eight, so right around the national average. But there are racial disparities that are really quite profound. Um, Mississippi, 73% of people serving life sentences are African-American, and that while a slight majority of people who are serving life uh, or life without or virtual life are there for homicide, uh, 41% are there for a non-homicide, and over 17,000 of those are there for a nonviolent crime. In Mississippi, 30% of the people serving life sentences are there for a non-homicide crime. And 7% of the lifers in Mississippi is there for a nonviolent offense. Tell me a little bit about nonviolent crimes. Sure. Those that are drug-related, property offenses, and other. So it could be, you know, something that uh, was a habitual offender, but it wasn't a, a, a violent offense, that sort of thing. 73% of people serving a life sentence are Black. So are African Americans committing crimes at a higher rate? Well, one of the things that draws, you know, African Americans into the system in these deep end um, sentences more so than whites is the establishment of three strikes and habitual offender laws. So we know that any way you look at it, African Americans are more likely to be entangled in the criminal justice system earlier on. And when they are have an encounter with the justice system, they're more likely to get a charge and a conviction and a sentence. And so these things accumulate so that by the time you have a third strike, um, the odds are really against you because the African-Americans are more likely to have already had these two strikes than whites for lesser crimes. There's been a fair amount of attention on juveniles uh, serving life without the possibility of parole because of three Supreme Court rulings that have uh, consistently restricted the use of life sentences in a mandatory fashion or for homicide crimes. 
Um, but in fact, there's still nearly 12,000 juveniles who are serving some form of a life sentence around the country to have that many people um, who were convicted before their brains are even fully developed to sentences that uh, they are not likely to survive because of the length of the sentence, you know, suggest that our system has gotten too harsh and that it has gotten excessive. What is the solution? So there's a number of ways that we can address this. One way that we can do that is to say after 20 years, say 25 years, that everyone who goes to prison with a lengthy term of imprisonment gets a chance to go before the parole board and show how they've changed over the past 20 years. I mean, all of us have changed over the past 20 years. And for most people, you can say that the changes have been positive, um, including people in prison. Um, Another way is to utilize the momentum from the juvenile rulings. People who commit serious crimes in their past ought to be punished, and there should be an adequate punishment, and there should be a certainty of punishment, but that extending that punishment for decades upon decades really doesn't do anything except to waste limited resources at the state level. Ashley Nellis is a senior research analyst at the Sentencing Project. Thank you so much for speaking today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Coming up at 9 o'clock, Deep South Dining at 10. It's Now You're Talking. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com.